Welcome to Behind the Body, the ultimate podcast exploring all things health, fitness, and lifestyle for women of all ages. Join your hosts, Andrea and Anna, as they bring you expert insights, personal anecdotes, and practical tips to help you live your best life. Whether you're a fitness enthusiast or just starting out, Behind the Body has got you covered. So grab your headphones, turn up the volume, and let's dive in. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Behind the Body. We have a back a special guest, a dear friend of ours, a licensed clinical psychologist, Dr. Minnie Ratu. And we brought her here because she is beautiful and intelligent and a dear friend, but because we have a very serious topic that we want to talk about today, and we really wanted her clinical expertise. So today we're going to talk about eating disorders. And this is such a prevalent topic. I think we all agree, uh, just being women, having grown up without social media, but now with social media and seeing our younger generation grow up with social media, the prevalence of eating disorders is so expansive that it's a really important topic that we want to touch on. Just in the U.S. alone, there are roughly 30 million people that suffer from eating disorders. And no one is immune to it. No gender, specific nationality, background, nobody at a certain weight. Everybody could be subject of eating disorder. So it's just a really important topic that we want to bring awareness to. And I know, Anna, you have maybe still do to some degree yourself suffer from eating disorder. Yeah, definitely a very, very good topic to talk about it because we can be easily misunderstood or think like, oh, I'm just like overeating or this and that. I'm struggling. And when I say I steal, because even I, I have episodio recently, I know that I have foods that it's better I don't start to eat because it's going to trigger me and I cannot stop until they finish. For me, I was struggling very, very hard time having episodes like many times a day and everybody uh, around me was telling me like, just start to eat. The feeling is like, if I don't eat, I'm going to die. Is the anxious is you eat very fast. You don't eat what you like. You eat what you see. I was to the point that I wake up like two, three, four a.m. and keep the whole night eating like cold beans, cold ice, and put it hide something and be try to to find it during the you know midnight and whatever. And it is so hard to control. Thank God that I'm a very very you know healthy spot right now. But I still feel and sometimes I still scare to have a new episode and you can easily gain like four or five pounds in one day when you are struggling with that. So having you here, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I'm very happy because Andrea and I, we want to, you know, bring as much more information. So if you feel like maybe it's what I have, maybe it's the way that I feel. Please go see someone, especially the professional that is going to help you. Because I struggled for two years. I was on my own trying to figure it out at first what is going on with me because I didn't have any idea what was going on. And so I started to find some information and I tried to work on my own because I couldn't afford it back the days, you know, someone to help me. 
And I think it's very important. I think I could have done like without this episode, it's like early and easier. Yeah, I agree. It's a very important topic. And a lot of us are not talking about it because there's a lot of shame and a lot of stigma when it comes to eating disorders and uh, body dysmorphic disorder. We hide it a lot. So people are not accessing the help that they need because they're not identifying it um, as early as they could. And so it's a very important topic. So I really appreciate you bringing this uh, to the podcast. It's a topic that Anna and I couldn't tackle ourselves. And we're so grateful for your professional expertise because you know a lot about this topic. You've done extensive research. You may have even treated patients that suffer from eating disorders. So just thank you for being here. And Again, I, the point is to bring awareness, but we're not here to treat or diagnose. Yeah, exactly. I appreciate you saying that. Everything that we'll talk about today is just for information. It's not a point for us to self-diagnose or diagnose somebody else. You would have to go to a professional to get a diagnosis and be evaluated. So anything that we talk about is in terms of symptoms or traits. And if you or someone that you know may be experiencing any of these uh, it's important to go to a licensed psychologist to get a full diagnosis and uh, go to your or go to your PCP, go to your doctor and share with them that you have some concerns around things that maybe that come up today. We want to talk about, first of all, some types of eating disorders, because I think that we probably for the mass general community that's watching or listening to us today, we probably are aware of what the most common ones are. But I think that you may not either a be able to describe it or classify it if you yourself have some of the symptoms or know somebody else with some of the symptoms. You just may know the names, but not really what they involve. So there are a few standard or I guess more prevalent ones that exist. Yes, um, there are. And earlier you said that, you know, how it affects a lot of different people. Yeah. So it's true. It doesn't matter your socioeconomic status, your gender, even though more women and girls are diagnosed with eating disorders, men and boys are just as much as at risk for developing an eating disorder. I did read somewhere in my research that men are about 25% of the eating disorder population, if that's the right way to say it. I thought that that was very high. And in fact, when we did our BDD episode, we also found a very high rate of men with body dysmorphic disorder. So yeah, it, even though our community is mostly women, it is interesting how it affects men as well. Yeah, definitely. And, and there are risk factors. So the, some risk factors are a family history. So there's family history of eating disorders. If they've observed it, if they've seen it in their house growing up, they're more prone to develop an eating disorder. Um, the history of trauma could be potentially a risk factor, but it's not necessary. So it's not a direct correlation. Some people think if you have trauma, then you know then you have an eating disorder, but it's not always the case. What kind of traumas would give somebody an eating disorder? Mostly sexual traumas um, for women. Uh, so there is some correlation there, but again, it's not if there's no direct causation. Yeah, but other types of trauma too, you know, if they've experienced neglect or abuse, uh, other types of major traumas, then they could be more at risk. Um, also, any personal history of anxiety, depression, OCD that could also trigger an eating disorder in of itself. But the exact e cause of eating disorders is unknown. So there's still a lot that we still are researching that we're still learning. Um, but as with a lot of different diseases and conditions, it's probably a combination of 
biological, environmental, social, um, all of those things in combination. It is so hard for me. I never had any hard time with food in my entire life until when I was 29. It was my first time that I had my eating. And before I could eat whatever I want. And then it started, I think, because of my competition, how the stress that, yeah, came like from... Out of nowhere. Yeah. One day I started and then when I realized that I had no control, I was already there for a little while. And interestingly, when you talk about like trauma or stress, I think when I've ever experienced anything close to an eating disorder and it would come in the way of when I was highly, highly stressed and like I needed to control something. Mm -hmm. And I did that in the way of like not eating. I don't know if it could be considered an eating disorder, but when you just start to eliminate food altogether, you know, to control while everything else feels like it's out of control, that's where I found myself in a couple points in my life. Yeah. Yeah. And and there's different types of eating disorders. So let's start with the major three that we all hear about. Yeah. There's anorexia, bulimia, and binge eating disorder. So anorexia is actually the most common type of eating disorder. And this is when we're kind of restricting our calories not eating enough of food, and then leads to lower body weight. And it, there's also this intense fear of gaining weight. So the person does, is just really afraid of getting bigger. They're worried about their weight in general. Um, and they're disturbed by their shape. They're disturbed by their self-worth. And they really, their image is very distorted too. So what the research shows is that people with anorexia actually have a distorted image, self-image. So it's not that they see that they're underweight. It's not that they can see it. And we know this because they've done like VR studies where they've had the patients come in and they have to create like an avatar of themselves. And there's such a big discrepancy of what they actually look like versus how they see themselves. And so it's not that they're purposely doing it. It's almost like this reflexive state that they're in and they're not actually consciously making the decision to undereat or uh, that they see themselves as thinner. Uh, so most people might, you know, when you see somebody who looks anorexic, you might say, what, what are they eating? Don't they see themselves? They actually don't see it. We can't actually blame them. You know, it's not like it's an active part of their way of decision making. There's a different part of the brain that's being activated and that's a reflexive part. So when we're making decisions, there's two parts of the brain that can be activated. There's from the prefrontal cortex, which is the executive function of the brain. And that's when we're making um, deliberate decisions. So planning, judgment, reasoning, we're evaluating a situation, and then we're making a decision based on that. And then there's a reflexive um, type of decision making, which is more out of habit. We're not thinking about those decisions that we're making. It's more on autopilot because we've just been doing it for so long. And so the brain of somebody with anorexia, that part, the second part, you know, the, the reflexive part is actually lit up quite a bit more than a healthy normal. So they're not making a deliberate decision to eat less. It's just more they're, they're even rewarded in the way the brain is wired. They feel a reward from from this like, choosing the uh, low calorie dense food versus the high fat food. So they, they're, it's not masochistic. It's not that they're punishing themselves. There's actually this part of the brain that they feel a reward from restricting themselves. Gosh, that is so interesting because you, you, you're exactly what you said earlier. When you see somebody who looks like they're anorexic and you think, 
can't you just see yourself? You're disintegrating. You know, you are literally down to just bones. And why just, why can't you eat more? You know, why would you put yourself in this state of like extreme despair? And it's so interesting to understand that their brains are cognitively not wired the same way as you, you and I, yeah. right? And you mentioned their like distorted self-image. Is that considered BDD or is that like a different type of self-image that they have of themselves where so that that's a trait that they have it's it's an experience that they have so that could happen both in bdd but and in anorexia or any type of eating disorder that they have they don't see themselves the way they are actually look so they're going to overestimate the amount of body fat they have they're going to overestimate how they even create themselves in their avatar there's but with help with treatment which we'll talk about later they do show that they're able to align it a lot better. So the perception gets more in alignment with treatment. So there are treatment options for, for all of these eating disorders that we'll talk about today. And I feel like people don't talk too much about it when they're going through. So they kind of hide yeah. from the friends and family that they are struggling, you know, because they kind of don't trust. It's like, you say like, no, you need to eat something. You're losing with like a... I'm not, I'm good, you know, and they go in. It's why some people end up dying because doesn't matter what we say, if they don't have like the right help, because we if we don't have the way to help, it is not about your show because they cannot, it's very, very interesting. Yeah. 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 And the other thing about anorexia that I want to point out, which is really important, is it's of all of the psychological diagnoses, they have the highest morbidity rate. They're more likely to die even more than major depressive disorder. So it's it's a really important topic that again that we're talking about today because before I started learning about this, I always thought major depressive disorder was the most like that people are going to die the most from that type of diagnosis, but it's actually anorexia is the highest, and that's because of the physical and physiological um, symptoms that they they go through because of what they put their body through that they end up dying from it. So there's like this loss of muscle mass, their heart rate lowers, there's loss of bone density, uh, they lose their menstruation, um, you know, hair growth, and you know, higher, they actually have higher cholesterol, which is really interesting. And they're just like their hormones are dysregulated, their body temperature, all of those things in combination is what leads to the, the death. And their organs start to shut down, yeah. right? Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's just crazy. Yeah. Okay. So it really places the body into this very risky state. And, you know, so that's why mortality rate is so present. But there are some misconceptions when it comes to anorexia. I also want to highlight it's not explicitly linked to perfectionism the way we would think. It's not about unrelenting standards. So people with perfectionism don't always have anorexia or have an eating disorder um, as we once thought. And it's also not changed much in since the 1600s when anorexia was first identified. In the 1600s? In the 1600s. Oh the prevalence actually has not increased. So that shows that it's not that the images that we see on social media or the magazines or the advertising of extremely thin or muscular bodies or what we're trying to uh, see, you know, what we see on those images, it's not increasing the rate of uh, eating disorders at all. It's actually about the same. Which would suggest that this is more of like an internal wiring of our brain. Yes. 
result. Yeah. Yes. So oh, that's it's probably so more of a biological condition that we can Thank you. pay Thank more you attention to. <laughs> <Thank you>. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Proper yeah. wording to it. Because I think anybody would consider the the social media now and the filters and the comparisons would absolutely make people more susceptible to mm-hmm. eating disorders or at least giving them a try. But mm-hmm. maybe, and I, of course, I, I'm not an expert, but I guess thinking through this, it could be that eating disorders are really hard to sustain. Mm-hmm. So maybe people in an attempt to look like somebody else or look different or better or skinnier or whatever it may be, mm-hmm. have a hard time sustaining that eating disorder or that way of now of eating or binge eating or whatever, mm-hmm. unless you are biologically wired to do so. Yeah. Okay. So um, I'm glad that you brought that up because there are different types of anorexia too. So there's, um, there's a restricting type. So there hasn't been a binge or purge in the last three months, but a lot of anorexic people do end up having a binging and purging episode. And that might happen every few months or every so often. So they do try, that's how they're able to sustain it. Mm-hmm. So they can have have it for a long time, but then they have these episodes that can happen, which doesn't necessarily place them as a bul- in a bulimic disorder or, or um, a binge eating disorder, but uh, but they're able to sustain it for a longer time because mm-hmm. of those, ev- those episodes that they have. Yep. It's extremely common, you know, like as we said, one to two percent of women, but the onset is in adolescence, but it usually is diagnosed, like you said, Anna, in our early 20s, and that's when we can see it. But 10 times the rate in women and young girls than in in men and young boys, but that doesn't mean that there's a higher risk. So the prevalence is higher in females, but, you know, the the risk is about the same. Um, It's going up for males now when it comes to the ability to diagnose and treat because there's better detection and we're actually identifying it a lot sooner, um, you know, because we're talking about it in, you know, places like this. People are getting more educated. Uh, We're uh, hoping to eliminate some of the stigma that comes with it Mm -hmm. as well. Let's talk about the second most common eating disorder. Yeah. So bulimia. Uh, so it's also it's also more common in females, but it exists in both sexes. Um, but it might be increasing in prevalence in males right now too. But it can, and it can be comorbid with anorexia. There can be an overlap with that. So bulimia is this recurrent these recurrent episodes of binge eating, and also this purging part of it. Right. So they're compensatory behaviors, um, but it has to happen at least once a week for every for at least three months for it to be a diagnosis. Is that it? Once a week for three months yeah. for it to be a diagnosis? Yeah, okay. it used to be. That's that's interesting that you say that, because in the previous manual in the DSM-4 prior to 2013, it was, I, I think, six months. So it was a, they would have a longer wait period. Wow. Now it's diagnosed in a shorter time frame. OK. Yeah. And so those compensatory behaviors could be like laxatives, diuretics, medications, fasting, or excessive exercise. Oh, okay. So it's basically binge eating Mm -hmm. and then getting rid of that food. Okay. That's what, yeah, exactly. That's what bulimia bulimia is. And that's what it sets it apart from this third one we're going to talk about is binge eating disorder, is that in binge eating disorder, they still have that that excessive caloric intake, uh, 10 to 30 times of their daily caloric intake within a short period, usually within like two hours. But then there's not that purging part of it. Got so it. they're not doing anything to compensate uh, the way 
like somebody with bulimia would. Every time that I had an episode, I put myself to do like double cardio yeah. and normal didn't. And yeah, it's yeah. crazy because that, and it's so normal because I do have clients mm -hmm. that do that, you know, like eating a lot and the other day, like pushing themselves. And well, that, I think as women, we probably all maybe thought about exercising off what we've eaten at yeah. some point, right? Yeah. Maybe yeah. not binge eating, but like feeling guilty about the food that we've yeah, eaten. Yeah, but like, I think when they became a habit, that has became a problem. Right. You know, well, when you yeah. can't, and it, it's what I'm talking, you know, it's not only... The normal scenario that we do, it is when you like eating, not like an extra piece of cake, but when you eat the whole cake. Wait, how many yeah. times a daily calories did you say? 10 to, 10 to 30 times their daily caloric intake within a, about a two hour time frame. Yeah, I can eat the whole box of the crumble cookie and I'm it is starting. Yeah. It's a specific. There's a specific. I know. Yeah. You can send it back. Don't do it. <laughs> because I can do Anybody I know can do it. I can easily do it. Mm -hmm. And there we are talking about 5,000 calories at least. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And 5,000 calories for me, it's a lot. And it's what I repeat myself. And mm -hmm. all my class doesn't matter how many minutes, hours, cardio I do. Never I'm going to overcompensate so I think it's when, when you do this sometimes, oh, I, I eat extra pizza, I'm going to do 30 minutes more is one thing. But for me, it was every day. Every day I had like an episode and I tried to overcompensate and I wasn't pain, the pill, but the most of my stomach, my inflammation was terrible. So bulimia and binge eating are the same thing with the exception of binge eating doesn't have the post- binge compensatory behaviors. Yes. And there is like a level of severity that we look at too. So with bulimia, it can range from mild, moderate, severe, or extreme, depending on how many episodes they're having per week and how many times they're doing the compensatory behaviors. So it can range from like one to three would be on the mild end and then 14 or more would be on the extreme end. Okay. I remember when Karin Sita talked about because she has bulimia and she said like everything starts when she was ready to for her 15 years board, right? I forget the name that they call here. Quinceanera. Yeah, Quinceanera. And she started and then, boom, mm -hmm. you know, was hard into her mom. You she know. seeked out treatment also. Yeah. Interestingly, in our interview with Karen Sita, she talked about her eating disorder. She had been eating mm -hmm. and she had mentioned that her mom put her in treatment mm -hmm. and she was 15 mm -hmm. and Eventually, she got out of treatment and she was actually glad she did. I'll never forget her saying because had she stayed in, she was taking, you know, she was like in these groups, right? Mm -hmm. Like, um, were you... You know, and yeah. I don't know what you would call like group it. therapy. Group, thank you. Uh -huh. She was in group therapy, uh -huh. and everybody was sharing their experiences. And she said Speaking during those times, tips. she was getting tips. Yeah, and she yeah. was like, "Those tips were giving me inspiration yeah. to like yeah. how to continue with my eating disorder after I was done." Which I think is that blew my mind a little bit, but yeah, that also made sense. Yeah, that can happen. You know, I mean, that's the thing about inpatient um, centers and. Even things like AA, you know, people are sometimes picking up tips from each other. And that's why in most group therapy contexts, uh, the patients are not allowed to spend time outside of the group therapy. They're only allowed to share and it's a confidential space, but they're not allowed to spend time together outside of the groups because of those. They can go do things together. But then the other thing is that they're just learning tips and then they do that on their own. So there's no 
way to really work around that completely. It's really about the individual really wanting to make the change. Right. And Mm -hmm. I think I was surprised how interesting the mind works. Mm -hmm. You're there for treatment, but then also like your mind takes over to say, no, 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 no. You know, we can continue to do this, right? So you're there to get better and then you'll find support. To get worse. Yeah. Sometimes, yeah. So it's really about the their, their motivation. You know, does does she go because her mom forced her or because everyone else is telling her to? Right. Or is it because she actually wanted the help and she was ready to change? And if they're not ready to change, you know, we there's only so much we can do uh, to intervene. We can continue to offer support. We can continue to offer resources. But it's really at, at the end of the day up to the individual to make the change and want it. For, for me, it's what happened. I was so disespaired because I did, didn't want to be the person. I still competing back the days. And I was just putting myself back on prep because at least on prep, I was doing better. And then when I retire, so like, okay, now I'm going to really deal with that. And I try to understand why I was doing that, you know, doing everything that, of course, is not the best way, but the way that I found do everything to distract my mind, mm-hmm. to remember like mm-hmm. how I feel after and to help me to have a solid goal. Mm-hmm. I think it helped me a lot. The way that I want to look, the way that I want to, where I want to be. I think the competition at the same time was I tried to, a trigger for me was the way out as well, you know? Yeah. Are there any common characteristics amongst people who may suffer from bulimia and binge eating in comparison to anorexia? Yeah, that's really um, a good question. Um, there is this part portion of feeling shame. So they feel disgusted with themselves, as opposed to, again, somebody with anorexia, they feel rewarded from being able to make the decision to avoid the high fat food, for example, and uh, to go ahead with the low calorie um, dense food that they're rewarded by their experience. But somebody with binge eating disorder or bulimia, they feel shame. They feel like this, again, this disgust with themselves. And so there's a lot of it's very difficult. Uh, so they experience a lot of dif- um, depression and guilt after their experiences, after their episodes that they have. Is there any behavioral symptoms after the fact? I mean, in, so they feel the shame and disgust with themselves. Like, is there any any other behavioral characteristics that follow that in terms of actions or do they just resume life as normal and then get back to the next episode when it overtakes them? Yeah. So the other thing with those uh, both binge eating and bulimia is that there is a high level of impulsivity. So they're more likely to be impulsive in other areas of their life too. It's not just with the food. And so (laughs) they may go and do other things that are impulsive. So shopping, sex, gambling, whatever other types of impulsive behavior. So that's why when it comes to treatment, we're really working on the impulsivity part of it, as opposed to somebody with anorexia. They're they're working on, you know, again, self-image and working on more of of, of that part of it. So it's a little bit different. Huge distinctions between the two or the the three, I guess we should say. I would have never thought that they were so different, so vastly different. Yeah. Yeah. So again, there's this like marked distress that they're experiencing and even binge eating can range on from the mild to to more extreme. So we're putting that on a severity scale too, similar to bulimia. So for binge eaters or somebody who's bulimic, they would perform the act, 
feel guilt, feel shame, feel disgust, Mm -hmm. probably swear to themselves it's not going to happen again, or at least, you know, hope that it doesn't move on with their life. And then the impulsivity takes over and then they do it again. And that's kind of the cycle. Right. Interesting. Okay. So it's also comorbid with anxiety and depression because of that, because of the the, The ups and downs of it, the highs and lows, I guess you would say. It's the way that I feel. It's why they say like that I still struggle because even I have had like episode recently, I had after I feel like fine back to more normal life mm-hmm. many times. Mm-hmm. Happened one time, I just feel like in a better spot in my life right now. Mm-hmm. But when I'm too anxious, something is, is too stressed or I need to do something that I'm you know, I cannot get it. I, it's so easy to lose control and start to eat without yeah. think. Yeah. And when I see I already have like eating the whole package of bread, let's see mm-hmm. that way, you know. Mm-hmm. And when I see the, the small episode, I stop and say like, listen, you already have one problem. You don't want another problem. Mm-hmm. So again, I try to, you know, do things to make my mind Mm-hmm. occupied to mm-hmm. not go in the way and try to remember that I was there and it was very hard because it's how I feel. If I'm too anxious, if it's something I cannot control, yeah. I'm going to eat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When we're stressed, when we're tired, when we're intoxicated, you're pulling from limited resources. So you're more likely to engage in impulsive behaviors when you're feeling that way. So it makes a lot of sense. And that's why, you know, even when it comes to interventions, again, you know, that self-care piece is so important, mindfulness and paying attention to how you feel, the interoceptive awareness, which is the understanding your internal cues. There's a disconnect for a lot of people that are experiencing even depression, anxiety. Uh, You know, I I talk to a lot of patients and they don't know, again, their, their own bodily sensations. How do you feel? They'll tell you what they think. They'll tell you what their experience is, but it's really hard to identify, again, their emotions. And so education around your experience around emotions and then also your bodily sensations. How do you know, you know, when you're feeling a certain way and being in touch with that? Yeah, I think just even having like the nomenclature, like the verbiage to be able to dig deep and understand how you're feeling, what maybe triggers you to feel a certain way. Mm-hmm is hard for a lot of people. We just don't have a lot of experience doing it. Let's talk about BDD. And while I'm not an eating disorder, Mm -hmm. it's sort of in my mind, it's like sort of in the same sort of classification or category, but talk about how BDD is different. Sure. So there's actually four different criteria we're looking at when it comes to body dysmorphic disorder, body dysmorphia. Uh, There's first this preoccupation with these perceived deficits in or defects, sorry, in their physical appearance, but it's not apparent to everybody else. So again, a preoccupation you know, they're, they're overthinking it. They're, they're really, it's on their mind all the time. So that's the first thing. The second thing is these repetitive actions. So constantly mirror checking, constantly skin picking, there's excessive grooming, asking for reassurance over and over. So there's some type of repetitive behavior that they're doing over and over. It can even be mental acts like comparing themselves. That would count as a repetitive, even though they're not saying it out loud to anybody, but they're in their mind, they're comparing themselves. So that's considered a repetitive act. Their preoccupation and I didn't bring this up with the other eating disorders. Um, This is really what 
stands out when it comes to a clinical diagnosis of any kind. We're looking at, is there an impairment when it comes to their social functioning, their occupational functioning, and their overall functioning? So that means how they're relating to their others. Is it interfering in their relationships? Is it really interfering in their life in some way? Is it interfering in their productivity at work? Is it getting in the way? So are they doing this? Does the preoccupation and repetitive behaviors, is it uh, getting in the way of them going to work or being able, are there consequences that they're experiencing because of um, the repetitive checking and the preoccupation that they're having? And then the fourth thing is that it's not better explained by another disorder like an eating disorder. So that it's, it's separate. So when we're looking at BDD or body dysmorphia, dysmorphic disorder, it's actually a different from feeding and eating disorders. It's an area of the manual under uh, obsessive and compulsive disorders. So it's obsessive, it's compulsive, and they, they can't stop it. They keep continuously checking, they keep continuously repeating the behaviors. And then there's specifiers too. Right. So specifiers can be uh, with muscle dysmorphia is one. So being preoccupied that their body is too small or insufficiently muscular. So as you can imagine, my, my glutes. <laughs> so as you can I imagine, in the, fitness, you, <laughs> yeah, in the fitness community, like this is, you know, it's part of our, it's part of our, I mean, we are all competitors or we've competed at one point, you know, so we know like this is part of the criteria that we look for. But is it preoccupying our life? Is it taking over other areas of our life? Now we're looking at a disorder versus something that we can say objectively, like this is a judge's criteria. You know, I need bigger glutes or bigger shoulders, you know, all of those things. That wouldn't be considered a disorder if it's not, again, um, it's not getting in a way, getting in, in the way of their life and causing that clinically significant distress. I think that can become, we can become obsessed with yeah. that and we stop to see the good things and we are only looking for what we need to get it. And sometimes are there, mm -hmm. but since we want to like bring it the best, we're going to be perfect. We want to see more improvements and we check ourselves so many times we cannot see it is very very hard yeah. and i think when we're talking about uh athletes yeah. bodybuilder i think we all have or we've been there or we you know so there's a range anxiety. right so again even when we're diagnosing body dysmorphia disorder it's how much insight does this person have so it can be good or fair insight and so that's what where we know we're kind of engaging in that behavior we know we're overdoing it we're overthinking mm -hmm. it we're aware when you say uh, like sort of like self-awareness yeah. The level of self-awareness yeah. we have about this. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, like we say prep goggles. I know I have prep goggles. So that you have good insight. You have right. fair insight. Um, poor insight is now you're believing this is probably true about me. Like I'm some something's wrong with me. I'm defective. And then on the other end of the spectrum would be the absent insight. So this person has uh, is completely convinced that their abnormalities or whatever they're feeling ugly about, it's completely true. And there's no way to convince them otherwise. All four of those 
categorizations, do you need all four in order to be diagnosed with body dysmorphic disorder? Or is it if you exhibit any of those four that you have some level of BDD? Yeah. So it's it's all four of the first ones that I mentioned. So the the preoccupation, the repetitive behaviors, the interference and in their and impairment in life, and then not otherwise specified with another eating disorder. Uh, but then uh, then we would put specifiers would be like with with good insight with you know so we're kind of seeing it on a scale gotcha uh, just like with the other ones we're saying you know is it mild moderate severe or extreme for this we're, we're saying as do they have are they insightful you know do they understand that they you know or is it more of a delusion and my question about the scale is why is there a scale why can you just have it or not and are the treatments different for which level on the scale you fall? So a lot of times, a lot of the diagnoses in the DSM, the, the our manual for psychiatric conditions, it, they do fall on a scale because not everyone's going to be so extreme. And so then it would be very black and white. And so they can have uh, resemble a lot of the same traits, but maybe not to the same level of severity. So even when we're getting treatment, you know, even we've talked about PTSD, for example, you know, they may come in with an extreme level. And then over time with treatment, I, I, I may be able to help them get down to a moderate level. So then we're saying that they still meet criteria for the diagnosis, but it's not completely resolved. Okay. That, that has anything related how much you're thinking about this, how much this affects your life. For example, as much you have this consumio, you are like moving to the other level, right? Mm -hmm. Because that is affected your your life in the general. But when is, this is start to be something that is, you know, bothering you every time, every situation, every day, and you cannot thinking about the other thing, but about, you know, how you don't like this area, how you yeah. like, for me, it was hard, for example, to take a self. Took me 37 years. Selfie? Was the first time that I took a selfie. Mm -hmm. I was 37 years old because I couldn't see my 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 face mm -hmm. in a picture in the way that depressing me a lot but also i didn't think about this i didn't don't take the selfie but wasn't something that bothered me yeah. so may i'm like in a moderate level and when that is start to bother you and you're only thinking about this the whole time you hear a work and boom your mind going to yeah. you know to these specific thought i think that yeah. is when you, you can change the life sure uh -huh. yeah and that's why you know social isolation depression and even suicidal ideation suicide suicide can be higher in people with bdd uh, because they're 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 isolating they're depressed in their experience and there's again a lot of you know shame around it for them too or they're maybe they're not as aware because it's incapacitating they're 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 so overly consumed that they're also isolating where they're not going out and public. And so it's interfering again in their life in a really major and traumatic way. And it's no matter what anybody tells them, they won't see themselves no, that way. No, so no, no, they they have poor, like, especially depending again, how much insight, right? So uh, do they have poor insight? Or, you know, do they have good insight? So they may if they have good insight, it's like, okay, I understand it, they can kind of come in and out of it. But somebody that's on the extreme side, then, you know, it's it's really difficult. And it's, again, it's it's treatable, but it takes a, it takes a lot of work. I know you already talked a lot about 
the symptoms for each of these eating disorders and BDD, but maybe we can just run through like high level, a list of behavioral and psychological symptoms that somebody may have that, Mm -hmm. of course, we're not diagnosing or treating our community or asking you to do that. But maybe we could just talk about some things that we might observe in somebody that has one Mm -hmm. of these eating disorders. So again, it's you know, are they over the restricting their calories or it's starting to impact their physiology, their their body weight? So we're looking at, again, the physical body first and psychological symptoms, you know, depression, anxiety, um, those types of things, obsessive compulsive types of tendencies. So are there rituals around what they're doing? Is there a compulsory, again, behaviors around what they're doing, looking at things like that? Then again, there's genetic predispositions that some people have to these conditions. So is it in their family? Is there, you know, somebody that they're in their their parents or somebody that they in their family system that may have been experiencing this? But it's it can be hard to detect. You know, again, it's it can be really hard to detect. So it's really when it comes to treatment interventions, family therapy can be really helpful because the family knows this person the best, and they're they they're actually the ones that can really intervene if they have a close relationship with the family. So for treatment options, it's suggested that the, that the family does like an intervention, or the family seek out professional treatment together. Together, oh. so it's like family therapy. Okay. So they sit together, they learn about the diagnosis, and then they learn how to support uh, their loved one that has the condition. But like you said, in order for treatment to be effective, the person with the eating disorder has to be open to the treatment that has to want the change, right? Because it's not something you can just go in and medicate out of mm-hmm. them. They have to be willing and they have to understand. I think with education that they understand it's it's habitual. It's not an active, deliberate decision that they're choosing to not eat or overeat. It's out of habit and it's, it's working a different part of the brain. So I think when they understand that you know that they they're not doing it on purpose that there's they're wired that way right now and then there if we can work on that habit piece when it comes to managing the the symptoms then it can be helpful so that's where they once they're getting educated about it and they're learning that you know this is again not the way I want to you know I know it's unhealthy and they have some insight right especially with anorexia they have insight that this is not healthy but then they have to change the way they're perceiving the the way they see themselves and so that takes time. So again, family therapy, but also cognitive behavioral therapy can be really helpful. And this is something that they would do individually? Individually, yes. So CBT is another great type of therapy. So that's that? when we're working on our thinking patterns. We're working on our beliefs. We're examining the evidence for our beliefs, um, our core beliefs. How do you see yourself? How do you identify yourself? And then also the rules and the assumptions that you have um, about yourself and the world around you. The if-then statements. If I am thin, then I will be liked, you know, kind of examining those rules that you have and then um, making changes around that. So that would be more of a CBT approach. Is there a specific type of therapist that one would seek out to treat specifically eating disorders? So there are people who specialize in eating disorders. So that's what I would recommend if, if you or someone that you know is experiencing an eating disorder. So I'm going to somebody who is a licensed professional 
professional and also that they specialize in this. So there are clinics, there are inpatient, there are outpatient, there's residential treatments, there's IOPs. So there's different ways to treat uh, depending again on the level of severity and how much um, support that the person needs. And so let's say I'm an individual with an eating disorder and I don't have the family dynamic or support to go to uh, to do the family therapy like you had mentioned. And I don't really know where to start. Would it make sense to go first to speak to a clinical psychologist and understand where I'm at? A, to confirm I have an eating disorder because I, I don't know if I can confirm that. And then B, to understand maybe what level I fall and what may be the right. most effective next yeah. treatment option. Yeah, definitely. You would want to go to a, a psychologist that can evaluate you, that can diagnose and then uh, tell you more about your your individual specific condition. I don't know if we mentioned this earlier, but, you know, when it comes to eating disorders, it's also culturally relevant to consider, you know, is this the standard for this culture? Does it make sense? You know, how much they're eating or not eating? So we want to consider all of that. So that's why it's very individual uh, when it comes to these conditions as well. It's not in one size fits all. <laughs> you know, it's not for everybody who doesn't have the same thing. So it's going to be, you know, again, highly individualized. If you don't have a psychologist going to your own primary care pro provider, telling them about your symptoms, and then they can give you a referral to a psychologist to get evaluated. Good. I think that that's really great advice mm -hmm. for anybody who feels like whatever we spoke about today might resonate with you a little bit or somebody close to you that you may know. We're lucky to have your expertise. Thank you so much. Such an important topic, such a relevant topic. And it's so hard, especially when you have biological or physiological factors that you're prone to that create the eating disorder. It's not something you can just flip a switch or decide not to do. Like there are real clinical needs in order to help you overcome that. It is very, very good to have you here and bring you like your knowledge. We see, we may experience, but it's a different when we have that knowledge. And something that's eye-opening to me is a, a take from this is the suffering in silence and this neurological overpowerment to your actions, right? Mm -hmm. That like nobody can really understand. Mm -hmm. So that's why I think this education is so, so important for our community. Yeah. It's I very agree. complicated. And even the treatment options are complicated. You know, not everything's going to be the right thing, the right fit for everybody. So uh, understanding for yourself, well, what is it that's going to help me uh, in the long run? And, you know, there's, again, there's uh, psychological interventions like therapies and group therapy, but then there's also yoga and mindfulness. Great point. Exercise. Yeah. And we know that there's a lot of studies that, you know, it does actually, you know, it can really be helpful when it comes to weight training and resistance training for anorexics because they're experiencing, you know, this, this change in their body. But if they're able to understand that I can learn to love my body and learn to take care of it and make it strong, I don't want to be frail. I don't want to have weak bones. Um, but I still want to look good. I still want to feel good. And, and shifting the mindset more towards health can be really helpful. And so the good thing is that there is a lot more research that's being done, but still, there's still a lot that we need to learn. And so it's more about 
you know, asking yourself, what's healthy for you? You know, what does it look like for you? And and that's going to be highly individual. Thank you so much, Dr. Minnie. We appreciate you. You have educated us so much and brought so much knowledge to our Behind the Body community. We'd love to have you back on. I think I said this last time too, but I love what you say about just like finding that movement that works for you to heal you, to make you feel your best, to feel strong. And so I would love to have you back to talk about the impact of exercise and movement on mental health. I think that would be a really great topic. I would topic. love to talk about that. Oh my God, you're going to love it. Learn from I you. feel like that's your, you have a yeah. lot of expertise, but I feel like this is your wheelhouse because you lead by example. And mm-hmm. so that's why I feel like it would be so great to have not only just your professional expertise, but actually hear how you really live into that mm-hmm. and how that impacts your life in such a way that I think could be so amazing for our community. So I, if you would come back, we'd love to have you. Absolutely. I'd love to do that. Thank you both so much. Well, thank you everybody for tuning into this episode. We hope that you found it valuable. We'd love to hear your thoughts, any comments, questions. Oh, I would also love for you to maybe talk to our audience about your Ask uh, Dr. Minnie on Instagram because they may have some (laughs) follow-up questions to this or something else, but it's such a great outlet to have your questions answered. Absolutely. I'd love for you to connect if you have any questions or any follow-up things, or maybe even just sharing a little bit about what's going on with you. I'm always, you know, here to offer any support that I can. Um, On my Instagram, handle I'm drmini.co and that's also my website is the same drmini.co so feel free to send me a message on Wednesdays I do an ask Dr. Mini so if you want to ask me a question uh, anonymously I will post an answer onto my stories every Wednesday I will link her Instagram below or and tag it here so you can see it if you're watching us on YouTube And thank you again for that. You're such an amazing person. So thank you. And then everybody like, subscribe, share with somebody that you think might benefit or find value from this episode as well. We would really appreciate it. And follow us on Instagram at Behind the Bod. And we will talk to you next time on Behind the Body. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Behind the Body, the podcast that's all about helping women prioritize their health and wellness. Remember, small steps can lead to big results and progress, not perfection, is the goal. If you enjoyed today's episode, please like, subscribe, and share with a friend. You can also follow us on Instagram and YouTube and let us know what topics you want us to cover next. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll catch you next time on Behind the Body.